You're tuned to WFHB. Volunteer-powered, listener-supported, Community Radio for South Central Indiana. Good afternoon. Reporting remotely for WFHB, this is Benedict Jones. And I'm Noelle Herhusky-Schneider. This is the WFHB Local News for Wednesday, the 21st of September, 2022. Later in the program, WFHB correspondent Abe Shapiro speaks with attorney Jeremiah Fry Pearson about a lawsuit against the rideshare company Lyft over its alleged lack of wheelchair-accessible vehicles, or WAVs. More in today's Disabulletin. Also coming up in the next half hour, back to Scammer School on Better Beware, your weekly consumer watchdog segment with host and producer Richard Fish. More following today's feature, but first, your local headlines. At the Bloomington Board of Public Works meeting on September 13th, Engineering Senior Project Manager Roy Aiden shared the progress on the West 17th Street Multi-Use Path Project. Good evening, Roy Aiton with the Engineering Department. I wanted to just bring a quick update about the project that we have on, on East or West 17th Street. This was originally a project that we had from the roundabout at Arlington and uh, Monroe all the way to Grant Street, but we divided the project off and we built the first half this summer from Walnut to Grant. And the second half is an in-dot project that's come through. Uh, the project was let in early spring and awarded to EMB Paving. So the we are in the utility relocation phase right now. So over the next few months, we'll see different utility companies coming out just to move the utility lines. Uh, the pole lines and that and then come next spring we'll have the construction begin we believe around march and uh there'll be different phases of an mot plan that comes through for this project Uh, one will be a complete closure of the kinzer 17th intersection for about 45 days and then there'll also be a one lane uh, westbound will be detoured for another phase of it and we're trying to get those phases to happen during the summer months when school's out so we're working with a contractor for that but i just wanted to bring the attention to the board next director of economic and sustainable development alex crowley gave an update on scooters in the city this is an update on scooters there is no action needed as a result of this um, uh, this evening Um, So let me start by describing the scooter team that is uh, within the city, who's on that, what role the the Department of Economic Sustainable Development has. Uh, It's a wide-ranging team. It involves legal, planning, public works, ESD, which is my department, Economic Sustainable Development, um, and and some others um, involved in in the overall kind of decision-making around scooters in town. The role that we have in my department specifically is in, in license renewals, so when there is a annual license renewal, we process those, review them, et cetera. We issue invoicing and receive payables and then ret- and then turn those payables over to the controller's office, another department, by the way, involved. And then we are the primary interface with scooter companies. So that, that's the, the departmental role within the broader team of, of the uh, what we call the scooter team. Um, that team meets about quarterly. We will meet again in early October, uh, and that's time to be in advance of the uh, scooter renewals that will happen in the fourth quarter. 
Uh, there are three companies in town, Bird, Lime, and Veo. They launched originally in August and September of 2018, uh, unannounced to us. Uh, in the case of Bird, Lime, I think, gave us a heads up that they were about to come. Veo launched later, uh, and they, they were much more uh, uh, engaged with us pre-launch, so, so we knew they were coming. Um, the original way that we were operating with them, first they launched, then a couple months later, in November of 2018, we instituted an interim operating agreement, um, which was an agreement that we set in place to help guide their, their operations in town. And then that was essentially replaced uh, in July of 2019 with Ordinance 1909 from City Council, which established this sort of scooter ordinance and, and, and you know, more specifically changes to other uh, uh, city regulations that now incorporated um, scooters. Crowley said the scooter companies have evolved and are willing to work with the city. The fleets have evolved since the original launch. Uh, the, the scooters themselves, you know, the stand-up scooters have become a little bit more robust um, with sturdier, you know, platforms, larger wheelbases, et cetera. They've also evolved how, how batteries are managed, um, where uh, Vio actually came out with this. I think other scooter companies are using it, where they, instead of taking the scooter away at night and bringing it back in the morning and charging it off-site, they're starting to implement replaceable batteries. So they just kind of leave the, the, the actual device and they just replace the battery. Um, and so, so that's helped a little bit on, on the, a lot of traffic that was unnecessarily created with moving scooters around at the end of the day. Um, we've also introduced, since the original launch, 100 sit-down scooters with VO. So that's more of a kind of, almost like a, moped-like device. It doesn't have pedals, but it's a, it's a sit-down version of the stand-up scooter. And then just recently uh, introduced 50 uh, e-bike, Lime e-bikes. So those are pedal-assisted bicycles. So we're, we're pretty interested in that. In fact, uh, someone in ESD was just noticing in our report we've just received from Lime, you can tell that the <clears throat> that the distance that's traveled by a stand-up scooter is is shorter than the distance that's, that's on a bike, that's somewhat intuitive, but it's interesting to see it in the data. I also think it probably expands the demographic that's that's using a shared device. You know, I think the stand-up ones, most people are a little bit nervous about, um, but the but the bikes are more you know in line with what people are used to. So that so we'll see how that evolves, and we're doing a little test to see how that evolves. Uh, so you know, again, we in 2020 in the academic year that's just started, I think we were sort of returning back to a time that we may have forgotten about, which was pre-pandemic, where there was a pretty robust deployment. There are definitely issues. We see uh, issues related to parking violations. Um, largely that is being driven by the rider, not by the company. So early on in the launches, we were seeing them deploy huge fleets in their kind of pods in the morning, and those were sometimes in the wrong place, and there were way too many of them. The, the, the market's kind of stabilized. I think the companies themselves know how to distribute them better. They are very responsive to us when they have distributed them in a way that we feel is inappropriate. We tell them no, and they will no longer do that. Where we see the, the parking violations is from the rider who's leaving the scooter in a place that they shouldn't leave it. Crowley explained the scooter team will be meeting in October to discuss renewing the scooter agreements for the next quarter, and will be working on implementing more rules and an additional staff position to ensure the scooters are parked in reasonable locations using geofencing and to ensure the safety of their riders. Next, city legal Chris Wheeler asked the board to appeal a violation of bamboo 
at a property located at 2739 East Briggs Bend. Wheeler said that although they normally recommend the board fine citizens with bamboo on their property due to its status as an invasive species, this particular property has a concrete planter to contain it. I think what the board has seen with regards to bamboo recently is that uh, staff recommendation and board orders are to eradicate bamboo where it's found. Uh, we have run across a situation tonight, however, where uh, staff is recommending that the appeal for bamboo be upheld and that the NOV uh, be voided. The reason and rationale behind this is for the property in question at 2739 East Briggs Bend is that the bamboo is actually a potted plant. Um, in this case, it's in a well-contained brick and concrete uh, structure. It's walled and uh, well-defined. The characteristics of bamboo are such that it wouldn't come out of this uh, concrete and brick structure unless, of course, that structure were to somehow become compromised. Uh, so with that in mind, um, uh, that's what the staff's recommendation is going to be. Wheeler said that the staff is following precedent with the bamboo petitions and recommends the property is monitored to ensure the planter is containing the bamboo. I think it's good for the public to uh, appreciate that this is kind of a precedent and there's a rationale behind it. We're not going willy-nilly into this. Um, so there's the fence that defines the property, but then more telling would be the actual uh, planter itself. Coming up. Yeah, so there's a well-defined wall, and it has a floor to it. There's a concrete floor and brick walls, and I very inarticulately referred to it as a box. <laughs> but it's much more than that. At any rate, what we would like for the board to do tonight, if it's the board's pleasure, would be to grant the appeal, void the notice, and direct hand to annually monitor the property to determine whether the bamboo has spread beyond the brick and concrete planter. The board unanimously voted to appeal the notice of violation. The next Board of Public Works meeting will be held on September 27th. At the Bloomington Plan Commission meeting on September 12th, Development Services Manager Jackie Scanlan gave her report on the planning department. Following Scanlan's staff report, Commissioner Jillian Kenzie asked if the planning department would send out more formal reports to keep the public informed. Yeah, I'll, I'll just add comment here that, I, I mean, I do think that the public is interested in this. Obviously, they were very interested in when we were making approvals for UDO revisions, and I think it's our duty to make sure that they continue to be informed so that then it isn't a surprise when we maybe make a different, we change the, we want to change the procedure in some way so that there's more um, constant accountability and responsiveness to what the public demonstrated some interest in through the UDO po um, process. So I, I just would probably, maybe it's a suggestion just to be a little bit more open and transparent. And if there's a way to track it on a public website, I think that would be really useful. It might prevent us um, headaches or complaints later about a lack of public knowledge about the process or how many came through. I mean, if we're flooded, I think they'll want to know that. If there's no response, I think they'll need to know that, too. So that it's a request, but I, I really like the idea of 
having a formal presentation, and if it is in memo format, maybe that gets recorded with us too so that we're kept aware or at least ensure that we have some means of making ourselves aware of where, what the status is. Scanlan replied. Uh, you might recall, I believe Director Robinson um, in our budget for this year is working on some outreach related to ADUs specifically. So it's kind of like ADUs is a little bit ahead Step. in the process than Plexus are. You know, when we first did ADUs, we weren't really getting very many. We made some changes and now we're kind of like further down um, looking at um, possible, you know, providing possible um, ADU examples to the public or, or having um, public meetings related specifically to those. So I do think that that I would think may end up getting mirrored with the Plex process as we kind of work through how to make them work if that's possible. Um, but yeah, definitely duly noted and I, th I don't know um, when the next time the department or the administration will request changes to the current um, Plex information, I do think there's some interest in kind of letting the current regulations run for a little while uh, to see if, you know, if they uh, point one way or the other. I think having one in a year is um, uh, pretty low. I think staff was anticipating that it would be low. It takes a while to get things like that off the ground. Um, so, but yeah, definitely uh, I'll speak to him about that. Thanks. Thank you. Next, the commission discussed an apartment complex University Properties hopes to build next to the football stadium. Zoning and long-range planner for the city of Bloomington, Gabriel Holbrow, presented an overview of the property. This is a request for major site plan approval for a new mixed-use building in the neighborhood just west of Memorial Stadium. The site comprises four existing parcels on the south side of East 19th Street, going from Grant Street on the west to Dunn Street on the east. The current zoning is mixed-use student housing. In the 2018 comprehensive plan, this is designated, the future land uh, use zone, or land use area is designated as neighborhood residential. The existing land uses on the site include a multifamily, two multifamily developments, multifamily dwelling structures. Uh, together they have 30 bedrooms, and there are also two single-family dwellings. The proposed land use is one mixed-use building with uh, uses including student housing or dormitory, office, and small retail sales. The surrounding uses to the north uh, is a mixed-use building under construction by the same developers. To the south and west are existing multifamily dwellings and student housing or dormitory, and to the east is Memorial Stadium and IU parking. Holbrow shared the planning and transportation staff's recommendation to approve the site plan. In conclusion, the petition complies with all requirements of the Unified Development Ordinance once the recommended conditions are met. The proposed development will provide a net increase in housing in a location that fulfills the comprehensive plan's description of where student-oriented housing is most appropriate. Specifically, that's areas away from downtown, within easy walking distance to the IU campus, already containing a relatively high percentage of student-oriented housing and with direct access to university-provided parking and the university transit system. The development will also provide space for small-scale neighborhood-serving retail consistent with the character of the neighborhood. The development's commitment to sustainable design, as demonstrated by the NGBS Green Certified Rating System, will assist Bloomington's efforts for climate change mitigation. And the petition will support housing affordability both indirectly by increasing the overall supply of housing in the community 
and directly by making a substantial payment into the City of Bloomington Housing Development Fund. With that, the Planning and Transportation Department's recommendation is that the Commission adopt the proposed findings and approve SP 3822 with uh, seven conditions. Kinsey asked about the sustainability commitment and if there was any guidance they used to decide the level of national green building standards and what is required for a project like this. Scanlan responded saying they looked to the Environmental Commission for guidance. The basic answer is when we were doing the UDO update um, to talk about the different incentives and how they were working and how we could improve them, one of the things we did was look to the Environmental Commission for guidance about which sort of, um, uh, oh, I'm not thinking of the word, but like which kind of guidelines make the most sense and then how to utilize those. So we are confident with what is in there based on the feedback we got, you know, and that council was supportive knowing that there are a number of council members who are very uh, kind of interested in that topic and um, very knowledgeable. Uh, we have gotten some feedback, not about this specific one, but about some of the things we put in that maybe we'll end up needing to tweak uh, next year when we come back through for our 2023 updates. But I think at this point, we're confident with, um, with what is being presented. The board unanimously approved the site plan. The next plan commission meeting will be held on October 10th. In today's Disabulletin, WFHB correspondent Abe Shapiro speaks with attorney Jeremiah Fry Pearson about a lawsuit against the rideshare company Lyft over its alleged lack of wheelchair-accessible vehicles, or WAVs. Lyft officials cited limited supply of wheelchair-accessible vehicles and driver availability as reasons why WAVs are only available to Lyft riders in nine cities across the entire U.S. To provide more insight on the issue, we turn to part three of an interview with attorney Jeremiah Fry Pearson of the disability rights group Westchester Disabled on Move Incorporated. So it was really uh, a deterrent in a way, would you say? Yeah, it's a, it's a deterrent to people. Transportation is such a key to access, and this is something that I think able-bodied people don't really understand. You know, when you're in a, and I didn't, I certainly maybe don't fully understand it myself, not having experienced it, but certainly didn't understand it until I, I started working on this case and having all of these conversations about it with people. If you're in a power wheelchair, getting out into the world is, is more difficult than it is for able-bodied people, and transportation is essential. And what Lyft and Uber are doing is they're knocking out the taxi cab industry. As the taxi cab industry becomes more and more accessible, Lyft and Uber are out-competing them. And Lyft, and Lyft is not doing its part of also providing accessible service. So you have people who are effectively shut out of a lot of the values of modern society. The transportation revolution that Lyft is bringing, it excludes people with disabilities. That's a step backwards. The ADA was designed to move this country forward and to create more equality for people with disabilities. Lyft's business model, as it relates to people with disabilities, has been an attack on the ADA and an attack on the advances that people with disabilities have made over the last 30 years. And that brings me to a case that happened last month where a California judge in the Ninth Circuit Court ruled in favor of Uber with a case regarding whether Uber was required to provide wave services in 
Jackson and New Orleans, especially a big city compared to some of the nine cities I know that are required to provide services such as where Lyft is headquartered in San Francisco. Why do you believe the court ruled this way and what would you do differently or similarly in the upcoming legal proceedings for Lyft? So there's actually been two cases like this, and Lyft won one and Uber won one. Yes. Um, and and you're, you're right to raise the one that happened recently in New Orleans. And I, I kind of want to say from the outset, I know the plaintiff's lawyers who are involved, they are good people and good lawyers who fought the good fight. Lyft lawyers are tremendous lawyers, and I think Lyft has also benefited, and Uber has benefited by having these cases litigated in San Francisco, which is Lyft's hometown. And because of that, there have been factual findings by the judges that are just wrong. And let me quickly talk about the Lyft decision in San Francisco, because it's wrong. There were a lot of rulings that are just wrong, and I say this with respect to the judge. Lyft's lawyers were great, and great lawyers sometimes convince a judge to make decisions that are incorrect. So there's two decisions in San Francisco in particular that blow my mind. The first of those decisions, it's a legal thing, but it's a technicality. Lyft in San Francisco defeated the plaintiff's motion for class certification, in part because Lyft convinced the San Francisco judge that there's not sufficient numerosity to certify a class. What does numerosity mean in English? To have a class action, you've got to have, courts vary on the number, but let's say 40. 40 is the highest minimum number. Yes. Um, so you've got to have 40 people in your class. Lyft convinced a federal judge in San Francisco that there were not 40 wheelchair users in San Francisco who would use Lyft but for Lyft's refusal to serve them. All due respect, that's insane. There are over 28,000 wheelchair users in the city of San Francisco, and courts routinely can infer numerosity from common sense. And if you have a class that, without being too technical, is basically wheelchair users who want to use Lyft but can't, it's pretty obvious that there's 40 of them in the city of San Francisco. You know, to hold otherwise, it would have to be basically that 99.999% of wheelchair users would not use Lyft. There's nothing that supports that. So Lyft got that argument, which is unique, and our judge in our case is considering that, and I'm optimistic that our judge will rule the correct way on that and certify our classes. After Lyft won certification, they went to trial. And you're right. San Francisco is one of the places where Lyft is required to provide service. They do provide some service. And what the plaintiffs said was, yeah, you provide service, but it's the worst service you could possibly provide. Please make it better. And they didn't really tell the judge how to make it better. We've got very detailed recommendations from Alex Gooding, who designed the report in New York City, as to how to make it better. But here's what Lyft convinced a federal judge of that blows my mind. Lyft convinced a federal judge that it costs Lyft more than $1,000 every single time it gives a wheelchair-accessible ride. And then Lyft goes, well, it's not reasonable for us to provide any more wheelchair-accessible rides because they cost more than $1,000 a ride. And the ADA, although it advocates for equality, it's also a law that's reasonable. I'm a big advocate for people with disabilities. I certainly wouldn't say that a company should have to spend a million dollars every time a person with a disability walks into a restaurant. That's not reasonable. So how does this get to this figure of over $1,000 a ride? Here's what they do. In San Francisco, because they're ordered to provide some wheelchair-accessible service, they contract with third parties to provide wheelchair-accessible vehicles. They pay those wheelchair those companies a rate that is too high per hour to provide the wheelchair accessible service. 
they don't allow for cross-dispatching, which is what most companies have, all New York City cabs are, which is they let an accessible vehicle serve able-bodied people and people with disabilities. So those cars that they're paying too much money an hour for, they can only take people with wheelchairs, which we think is stupid and it's bad business. And then they use what you mentioned earlier, which is the toggle. And what the toggle is, is Lyft is hiding that it actually has wheelchair-accessible vehicles on their app. As an able-bodied person, if you open up your Lyft app anywhere in the country, you'll see all of the cars that are available to you. Standard mode, Lux, Black, environmental, whatever, whatever, all the options are. But if you're anywhere in the country, but if you're in any of the access regions other than New York City and you want to find a wheelchair-accessible vehicle, Lyft enabled the toggle. And the person who invented the toggle, who was the head of Lyft's wave team, explained that it was, quote, an Easter egg, which for folks who aren't gamers, which includes myself, that means something that's really hard to find. They don't advertise or make it known to the community that there are wheelchair-accessible vehicles, and then they pay a high hourly rate. So what happens? So Lyft ends up paying over $1,000 per shift for these cars to sit in parking lots and not pick anyone up because people with disabilities don't know the service is being offered and able-bodied people can't use them. And then Lyft says, well, Your Honor, we pay over $1,500 on the average shift, and the average shift only gives one ride. It's $1,500 a ride. That's true, but it's also insane. That's not how you run a business. We know if you turn off the toggle, wheelchair-accessible ridership will more than double because that's what happened when they were ordered to do it in New York City. And we know if you let the vehicles cross this patch, they'll make money. So what Lyft does is it pays cars to sit in parking lots and not pick up passengers, which is the most economically insane thing you could do, and then turns around to the federal court and says, guess what? This doesn't work economically. And somehow they convinced the judge that what they were doing was reasonable and that making changes was not. Um, just one other minor thing about the San Francisco litigation. Lyft has never advertised its wheelchair accessibility programs except twice. Once, when the New York City TLC made them do it, and the second time in San Francisco, which they just happened to do out of the goodness of their heart right before their case went to trial. Now, you're, you're probably wondering what their advertisement was. They mailed coupons to random people, and I don't think I'm allowed to say the number of coupons that were accepted. Oh, no, of course, yeah. You can count that number on all of your fingers and toes. That is not what an advertising program is. You do not do that if you are actually trying to successfully run a business. You do do that if you're trying to scam judges and avoid the law, which is what Lyft did. Up next, back to Scammer School on Better Beware, your weekly consumer watchdog segment on WFHB. We turn to host and producer Richard Fish for more. Welcome to Better Beware. Here's your consumer watchdog from WFHB Community Radio with the latest information and helpful hints designed to keep your head out of the clouds, your feet on the ground, and your money in your pocket. Well, the school year is back in full swing now. It's been over a month. The IU students are back for the fall semester. And if you're one of them, welcome back. We really are delighted to see you. 
By this time, local residents are feeling better about driving into town. The annual avalanche of people driving rent-a-trucks and newbies trying to figure out the one-way streets and the four-way stops has subsided. And, of course, the school buses are back on the roads big time. I trust you're coming to a full stop when you see those flashing lights. We all have to keep an eye out for people who aren't as tall as they're going to be later on. But back-to-school time is a gold-mine time for some scammers, and there are some things to keep in mind. When school starts up, quite a few folks post pictures on social media, showing their pride and joy starting on the next grade up in their school career. Sometimes the kid is holding a sign or a reader board, and the post often contains details like the child's height, age, interests, the school they attend, their teachers— their favorite colors, and so forth. The Better Business Bureau is warning parents to avoid sharing too many details. Scammers are harvesting this data, and it could be used to impersonate a child or to contact them and gain their trust. And later in life, people often use information about their schools or teachers as security questions in online accounts. Another thing for both parents and kids to watch out for is phony friend requests. Don't accept a friend request from a stranger. That should be obvious, but too many people still do it. And be very suspicious if you get a friend request from someone you're already connected to. It could be an imposter trying to get hold of your friends list. But it's great to share information on social media about how your kids are growing up. Just make sure to double-check your privacy settings on Facebook or wherever, and control who can see your posts. And, as kids mature and start having their own accounts, it's up to parents to make sure they know about privacy settings and the dangers of putting too much information out there online. Once they start leaving the nest, going away to college, that part of their education had better be pretty well done. College students are targeted with all kinds of scams, including SAT preparation ripoffs, phony help finding scholarships, and online help to do homework, which can turn into outright extortion. We'll talk about those later on, but as always, one good source for info about how to stay safe is the Better Business Bureau's website at bbb.org slash scam tracker. A search for BBB scam tracker brings it right up. I'm Richard Fish for WFHB News and Public Affairs. Better Beware comes to you from WFHB Bloomington, Indiana. Find all our episodes at WFHB.org. If you can help put the kibosh on a con, email beware at WFHB.org. Remember, swindlers never give a sucker an even break.